This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. As the battle for global domination accelerated in 1944, it was time to open a second front in Europe. It would take all the men, might, and machines the Allies could muster. For across the narrow English Channel lay the great fortress of Europe, Hitler's Atlantic Wall. Mile upon mile of reinforced concrete, heavy artillery, and barbed wire, which made the cost of approaching France from the sea seem unthinkable. The Allied commanders foresaw their soldiers wading through tides of their own blood to breach the deadly barrier. U.S. Navy combat demolition units, called NCDU, were to come ashore in the very first waves of assault troops to blow up beach obstacles and clear the way for the landing craft. The following are in-depth interviews with courageous men from these Navy combat demolition units. These are their experiences in their own words. Jerry Markham was a chief machinist mate in Navy Combat Demolition Unit 46 on June 6, 1944. Let's just kind of start at the beginning. How did you get into Navy Combat Demolition? Well, it was uh, in 1943. The war was going on pretty heavy if you're at that particular time. And I was about 24 years old. I was working on a large power plant in, uh, in a paper mill in Jacksonville, Florida, and I had an exempt job as far as the draft was concerned. But I was coming... for just a second. As much as possible, don't look at me when you're talking. We'll just carry on our conversation here and ignore these guys. Yeah. So I was, I was becoming pretty restless, uh, and I decided that maybe I could join the CBs and make a contribution along the lines of my power engineering training. So I went out and joined the CBs, and arranged to be inducted in the, out of New York City because I wanted to visit my mother who was living in New York at the time. And uh, so that's where I was inducted. And I went on a trip uh, when we were on a train of just bodies hanging all over the train going to Camp Perry, Virginia, a big CB base, construction battalion base. I went through the basic, started through the basic training as they call boot training. and. They looked at my enlistment papers and decided to send me to water purification school. Now, I could see myself chlorinating water or converting salt water to drinking water on some island in the Pacific. And that didn't sound like too productive uh, to me, although it was important, but who the hell wanted to do that? But one day after boot training was over with and I was in the pool waiting for assignment, I was doing messenger duty in the Office of the Day's office, and I saw this bulletin that says, Volunteers wanted extremely hazardous duty. Must be experienced in swimming, small boat handling, and some diving, and so forth and so on. The diving intrigued me, because I was always interested in, uh, in deep-sea diving after reading the 20,000 leagues under the sea. So I signed up, I volunteered for that. And <clears throat> About four days later, the 90 of us assembled in a far remote corner of the Camp Perry base. And these were all the volunteers. And we all assembled in the morning at muster around 6 o'clock. And we were forced marched through woods and back roads and whatever, so about three miles to a drill field, where when we met five of the loveliest Marines you ever laid eyes on. And then there's a sergeant by the name of uh, Lombardo. They only, uh, Redhead of the tie I'd ever seen in my life, and he was in charge. And they put us through what, the, what was called a modified Marine Raider training program. It was designed, it was physical disciplinary training. It was designed to separate the men from the boys. It was understood by them. They wanted to shake it down, and they didn't want anybody left in there that wasn't physically fit or mentally could cope with the stress and duress of, a, of the training program. So after four weeks of that, there was only 30 of us left out of the 90. They sent half of them to Fort Pierce for the training base in Florida. They kept 10 of us back to go as group leaders through the next group. This is humorous part of it. When I showed up the next morning with the next group of about 90 volunteers, this red-headed sergeant come over, and they always change their name. Mark them, become Marco. Marco, come here. 
I said, he says, look, he says, not even Marina has to go through radar training twice. I said, Sergeant, once you've been through that bullshit, it doesn't matter anymore. And he laughed. And I'll give you a side story on that. I saw him a year later on the island of Maui. He was in the 4th Marine Division. He'd been back for R&D. He was in the ship store of a naval base there, and I walked up behind him and whispered in his ear, I said, you still haven't got any crap from me, Lombardo. And he, he was shocked, but it was a beautiful coincidence. So anyway, we got through with this rugged training, rugged initial training. We went through it again. Interesting thing about the training in, in Fort Pierce, I mean, in, in Camp Perry, was we used dynamite for explosives. We didn't have the, the plastic explosive. We had to train with dynamite. And uh, the reason why initially the selected CBs are first volunteers because they assumed they could get men who were experienced in using explosives in construction work. It was a good theory, but they, they, they didn't screen them that way. And the obstacles were we were blowing past through trees, and we would blow uh, concrete embutments for tank traps and so forth and so on. And we're on a barge out in the river using deep sea diving gear, and the uh, jellyfish would eat you alive. And we were in a tank experimenting with a so-called self-contained unit called Jack Brown. And this is where I met uh, Kaufman, the father of demolition, for the first time. Uh, he brought the Jack Brown along. He said right on the side of it, do not go below 35 feet. He said, I want you to try it out at 60 feet to start with. So after three days of pulling us up and giving us back oxygen, we finally determined it could go, couldn't go below 40 feet. But it was never used in combat. But anyway, that's another story. So we finally, uh, the Marines gave us the craziest training program. Uh, knife fighting, bayonet fighting, close order drill, uh, jujitsu, swimming in a pool, underwater, holding your breath, everything. You could, any way they could figure to torture or kill you, they, they gave it to you. But it was, it was, well, you felt so damn proud of yourself when you got through it if you were still alive. The obstacle course they had was another, they would take 10 of us and say, you've got so many minutes, all of you, to get through that course. And if the last guy is late, they all go again. That created a buddy system like you never saw before. And this is where I've become very popular because I was a pretty strong guy, probably the senior guy in age to the group. So I kind of hung back and made sure the stragglers got through in time so we wouldn't have to go through. For somebody who doesn't know, in, during D-Day, yeah. particularly D-Day, what was the NCDU's job? What Specifically, what, I mean, most people have never heard of it in, in today's generation. Are, what, we, are we off the... Uh, sure. I <clears throat> do a digress from that. I'm going to make a presentation tomorrow at the ceremony of the plaques to the museum right. for the NCDU men's. And by happenstance, that happens to be the topic I'm going to talk about. Oh, good. I'm going to say many times I've been asked, what was your job during D-Day? What was the Navy supposed to do there? I answer the question by giving logistics first. I go on to say that the Omaha beachhead was crescent-shaped about five miles long and was flanked with sheer cliffs from 100 to 150 feet high, embedded with concrete gun placements. Every beach section of the beach was zeroed in for direct and crossfire. The beach was 300 yards wide at mean low tide. There was a 26-foot tide when it changed. It came in a foot every eight minutes when it started coming in. The water temperature of the day was about, 20, about 78 degrees. Now, our job <clears throat> was to blow a path through those mines obstacles for the incoming forces. When you say those mine obstacles, what do you mean? Tell, just they were uh, different-shaped obstacles with mines sticking on them. When the landing craft come in, it hit them and explode. And it would destroy the landing craft and whoever was in it. That's what they call obstacles, mined obstacles. And they were placed at different tide levels with a 300-yard beach. Because if the water come in at four or five feet, then your landing craft could go above it but it would catch another band of obstacles and another band until you got all the way to the high water mark. There were about 20 bands of heavily mined obstacles. They were different shapes, some made out of steel gate formations, some made out of piling, with wood piling and stakes and what have you. But the interesting thing about our job, to finish the narration, was 
We didn't have an our little elected group when we went to went, were shipped over to England for this training and preparing for this. We didn't have any rank to speak up, so we were not privy up the line as to intelligence reports. Nobody knew who the hell we were because of strong intelligence. In fact, strong security on them. In fact, when we were first there, we would put our guard duty on ammunition dumps. They figured underwater demolition, so put them on that, you know. But anyway, long. Finally, we got some rank. We had two commanders come over after two weeks of induction training to take charge of our group so they could get up into the, into the loop, so to speak. And then we found out when we got into the loop through aerial photographs and intelligence reports that we were severely undermanned as far as doing the job on that kind of a beachhead in that time allowed. So we then joined the Army Combat Engineers and formed gap teams. We trained with them for two months. We taught them everything we knew about underwater demolition. And then we got five combat engineers assigned to our unit. We got three different, three different men out of a replacement pool in, in Scotland to make up a 13, 14-man unit. The Army had a 26-man combat team. We formed the, the two together to make one gap team. And that one gap team went in in the same boat, uh, HR. Our job as Navy was to take the low water mark up to the high water mark. The Army would come in front and start at about midway and go on and cross the beaches into the ravine exits and blow the mines and booby traps and that. So you were up to the water's edge and they got it beyond the water's edge? Is that the basic Well, point? we all got off together and, and we started loading obstacles at the front at the mean low tide level and they went forward because we were going to work all the way up to the high water mark. So they went forward and started up there and to, to take it to the high water mark and over into the exits to the beach, the ravines I was telling about. Now tell me, and I'm going to just ask questions. Go ahead. I'm going to throw you off, but I'm going to just ask specific questions. Tell me, when you say you started taking these obstacles, what, physically what did you do? Describe what, where you wore the dynamite or the, the explosion charges and, and how you rigged them. We, we uh, each man, <clears throat> had about 40 pounds of plastic explosives that were put in a thing called Hagerson packs. It was a little canvas sausage shaped thing and it had a string of primer cards through it with a hook on one end where you could wrap it around a leg of a mine obstacle over here and over here and then we'd come along and take a firing line and tie it right into it with a, with a, with a knot. Go from one to the other. And each man carried about about 20 of those, they're about two pounds apiece, which was sufficient to blow obstacles, the main portion of obstacles. We then carried extra explosives and a rubber boat that we took towed out into the water from the landing craft, which was hazardous as hell because the mortars were hitting that and killing, kill one whole unit, one, 13, bad number. I, my job, and me and the officer, we carried the detonators under our armpits, taped under here for security purposes. It didn't matter if it hit you there and you got it, but it was going to get it anyway. And my job was to carry the reel of primer card to go behind and tie in every man's job, explosion, to into this single firing line. And this primer card had a firing rate of 22,000 feet a second. So you had a simultaneous explosion when you detonated it with a, with a detonator cap. Does that answer your question about how we were loaded? Sure. And the Army combat engineers were loaded the same way for the underwater obstacles, so to speak. We say underwater because they were covered with water at high tide. But I guess all... what I'm not clear about, and you kind of explained it, but just yeah. what I'm not clear about is where, where the separation was between you and the Army guys in terms of what you did. Well, the, there wasn't any fine line drawn. They say 300 yards. Uh, there were some sections of the beast was 250 yards. Some was 350 yards. And each gap team worked out the line of, 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 of where one starts and where the other one. And <clears throat> the understanding with our Army guy was that he would go halfway up, 150 yards, and start. And if we were successful in clearing from the, from the blow water mark to, to caught up with him, we would continue helping him clear all the way up to the high water mark and maybe go inland on the booby traps if we had enough explosive left. That's the best way I can answer that. Just a dumb question now. So when you say 300 yards, that's the tide range? That's the low water mark. From low water mark to high water mark. Is Visualize a 26-foot tide 
and it was went 300 yards. Three, and it left the beach so with a. You guys came in at low tide. You guys were mine the basically the bottom half of that low tide. That's right. And the army would start halfway. and They get the top. But we landed together. You yeah, exactly. You all landed together. But they basically ran past the first half of half of them. The theory was the theory there. was they would start say 150 yards up. So you basically, each did half of it. Right. They did the top half. You did the bottom half. And then when the tide came in, there would be a path. That was the plan. But it didn't work that way because everybody was shot to hell in a basket. There was only five caps blown out of 16 that, that morning. There were two partials. I merged two units together, what was left of them. My, half of my, over 50% of my unit was killed. I'm going to stop you for a second because we kind of moved ahead. Because I, I, now that I understand what you did, yeah. just, you know, very, very few people were there. So just take me through your experience on the landing craft, what it was like as you were approaching, you know, what, what, how are you preparing for this? Is it just another day? Is it, are you pretty confident? Are you worried? Well, we're pretty busy that day. Uh, I say that humorously. Let's go back to uh, England. We were getting ready. We were all bivouacked in. What do you call it when you're loading, get ready to disembark? Yeah, disembark for invasion. The ship that carried us over was an LCT. That's a tank carrier. You know what it is? So the Army Gap Team and the Navy Gap Team were staying, were living on steel decks, no quarters, no hot water, no cooking facilities. We were eating coal rations, K rations, which was all right. But it started raining like hell. And we landed there on June the 3rd. On June the the 4th had decided to make the invasion on June 5th. We started, we left the port, went out in the channel, a storm blew up, and we had to return back and start all over again. And meanwhile, everybody's seasick, everybody's green around the gills, and everybody's sloppy, wet, and so forth. Now, I don't exaggerate the conditions, they were horrible. But if that training we hadn't been through, that Marine Raider and that Hell Week stuff, if we hadn't been toughened, we wouldn't have made it. I want to stress that point. Because that saved a hell of a lot of lives, that, that physical disciplinary training. So we finally made the D-Day. The story gets good. We start the invasion on the LCT. We had a 50-foot landing craft in tow behind our LCT. We had three tanks aboard the LCT. We had the Army Gap Team and the Navy Gap Team, which was one combined Gap Team. And we had the ship's crew. Now, along about 4 o'clock in the morning, we're about three or four miles off the shore of Normandy. The LCT began sinking pretty fast in the stern. I went to the ensign who was the ensign who was captain of the NCT. I said, I think we're taking too much water. He said, no. Nah. I said, take a look. He come back and says, yep. He says, so I called. My officer in the meantime was green, was seasick, and he, you know, he was out. I said, John, I said, I'm going to get the landing craft. We've got to get off this thing because it's going down. So we got the landing craft to come alongside. The coxswain put it in there and he kept it in there. We got the crews off, got them all off, and just untied the line when she went down. We then took the crews over to transport. There was a cargo net hanging over the side. We made them all climb up the cargo net and get their butt off. The gap team then got back in line and we made, we were three minutes late, make it HR, it was 6.33 instead of 6.30. And we were right on target. Now, I didn't have much time to think about what the hell we were going to do, busy with this, you know, staying alive, trying to get there where I could get killed, you know. But anyway, that's a forerunner of the question you just asked me. I think he told you I was very <laughs> implicit. We'll stop you for a second. Would you like a drink of water? Hmm? No, I'm all right. Okay. When we landed, it became obvious as we were getting clear, clear the, 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 the beach to, 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 to drop ramp. We were seeing uh, paratroopers floating in the water who had been dropped short of the beach. We couldn't pick them up going in, but they could be picked up coming out if anybody survived. And then we began to see the martyr fire, the 88s hitting here and there. And as we, get, as we hit the water, we could see the machine gun fire. I could see the little crossfire of a machine gun from one side to the other. The other side, it's just sweeping. I found out later that the Germans had four machine guns, two crossfire fired by one guy. 
and they were using wooden projectiles, anti-personnel projectiles. Anyway, so we hit the beach. The Army guys were out first, going up, going up the line to their gap team. We come along afterwards. I was in the rear because I was carrying the firing line to, to tie in all the explosives as they were placed. And some of my seamen were handling this rubber craft with the extra explosives. As we got it out into the shallow water, a martyr came over and hit near or hit the craft and it blew it all to hell and gone. And as I was watching by happenstance, my seaman, his head, half his head was blown off. That's when I knew that we were playing for keeps. So those explosives are all gone now. So I turn and I start forward. The Army guys are all haunched down, hiding behind the, the op mined obstacles to get out of the range of gunfire. And there's my officer laying face down in the water. So I turned him over and he was dead. He'd been killed with a heavy piece of shrapnel. So as I began to move along, well, myself along the lines, watching, looking for my men, and they had scattered as pre-planned to different sections to work this way. And I would see some of them down, some of them wounded, some of them. So I went through and I tied in as best I could. After about an hour of this, we, it was a matter of survival. We couldn't work, the fire was too intense. The cross current tide running through that swept some of the units into ours. And that unit was half depleted with casualties too. So I merged the two and used their explosives and what little I had to blow a partial gap in those obstacles. It was the best we could do. And it was the only thing we could do. I'll just lay there and get killed. And uh, so as we progressed up, we tried to carry the wounded with us. And this water temperature was 58 degrees, was horrible. But we did get the, a lot of the wounded up, up on the dry beachhead. And, uh, as we neared the so-called high water mark, my army gap team was shot to hell. They were scattered all over the place. They couldn't blow anything, but they had shot up all the pieces. There was three guys had dug a, a dugout into the sand behind the, the shoal, the high water, the beach, the beach wall. A mortar came over, hit the sand, and buried them. I jumped and ran and dug their heads up real quick so they wouldn't smother. I didn't realize at the time I was exposing myself to gunfire. See, so I hung a goddamn medal on me for that. That's the end of my story on that part of it. But logistically, we uh, we blew five complete gaps that day. Three when parts. When you say five complete gaps, you mean through the entire 300 yard path? Five 50 yard gaps from the high water to low water to high water. And how three. Long did, how long did, I mean, I mean, time seems like it would slow down, but how long did it actually take to blow those gaps? Well, I'd do, do it in less than four hours. Uh, you have to start getting on coughing, sorry. How long did it take to blow them? Less than four hours. So are you in fire that entire four-hour period while you're blowing gaps? Oh, yeah. yeah. And how on earth do you survive under machine gun fire for four hours while you're blowing gaps? You just lucky misses. How does that work? That I, I have no, no technical answer for. It's just the luck of the guards, that's all it is. If many of us survived because we were hiding behind obstacles or we were hunched down behind somebody else who got the fire instead of us. It, it just, there was no, no method of hiding from that machine gun. It was crossfire, you couldn't hide from it. If you went that way, they would get you. If you went that way, they would get you. And the martyrs, these 88s were the most accurate weapon in the world. They could, they could hit a gnat in the ass with one of those things. And uh, did you see the movie Private Ryan? Well, that was no exaggeration. That 19 minutes lasted over four hours, the intensity of it. So what, are you, what, what is going through your mind for these four hours while you're working? Is it survival? Is it rigging these explosions? Is it your men? What is it? Well, after the shock, the first shock of seeing uh, my, my guy's head blown half off, the reality of, of, of what we were into as far as danger was concerned. Up until the, the danger, it was a job to be done that we'd been trained to do and we were good at it and we were gonna do it. And then the reality of the danger hit me pretty strong. And then finding my officer killed, that confirmed the danger of it. And then seeing the wounded. It then become a matter of 
survival and trying to do the job too, which is a conflict. You can't survive and do the job that we had to be doing. And then when we're able to, later on to combine other partial units, then some leadership took over, and we then began to do the job. That's how we managed to blow a partial gap. We what, took do you, what do you mean some leadership took over? Well, someone began to direct the thing uh, verbally, and it was me partial of the time. And what another, did you do? Well, I, I just pulled them over and assigned them to areas to load their explosives in. Because they were, they were all off, they were, the gaps were 200 yards apart. And it's, this is how far they were blown off course. So they, had to, they didn't know what the hell the extremities of our gap was. So I was directing them into our gap, four or five of the men. And they were helpful in blowing that partial gap. That's how that come about. And uh, of course I was a well-known guy anyway. I don't know why, but I was. Um, so... I mean, let's just cut for a second while I catch my notes. Okay. Speed it. I think I know the answer to this, but I want you to tell me. I mean, there were whatever, I think it was 2,800,000 guys, I think, ended up going into France by the time it was all over. Where are you in this, on this invasion spectrum of guys and machine and everything else? I'm assuming that you're like in the first or second boat coming in. Kind of tell me where you are. How close are you to the first boat coming into? Well, let me give you the, the logistics. There were 16 gap teams lined up, 200 yards apart, to blow a 50-yard gap from high, low water to high water mark. And they were numbered from the west, one, two, three, four, on to 16. I was in number 11, Easy Red Beach, famous Easy Red Beach, if you've probably heard of it. We had five support gap teams laying back behind us to come in where and when needed. Believe me, they were there right now and shot to hell like anybody else. The Army had four or five reserve gap teams waiting for them. There were two co command boats back, patrolling back and forth, observing what we were doing to see where we were supposed to be, how we were, how we were doing, what, where they could be of any help in directing, support help, or what have you. That answer your question, number 11 in the middle of 16. And that's Different. the first team to get the beach, correct? That's you guys were in front of the infantry. They tried, to put, they tried to put some, some secret weapon tanks called water buffaloes on the beach, and they all sank the minute they hit the water. So there was nobody on that beach but us on the, at HR. But waves were coming in behind us. In a matter of 20 minutes, there was another wave, and this, this hampered our job when we were able to finally load a, a portion of these obstacles with, with explosives. We couldn't blow them because the soldiers coming in were hiding behind the mine uh, obstacles. And we had to blow, we had to get up and blow smoke, red smoke bombs and tell them, you want to die here, you want to die up there, and I get the hell out of here. By the time we get this bunch out, another bunch would come in and, and hide in there. So this thing was just, it was a rabbit hutch. I mean, how did you actually get the guy, I mean, what goes to your mind when you got a guy hiding behind an obstacle and you're going to blow it up? I mean, that seems like a pretty tough spot to be in for both of you. I didn't deliberately blow any obstacle with a guy hiding behind it, but I, I scared the hell out of a lot of them. <laughs> but, uh, when, you, when you crawled over to a guy and you took out a red smoke bomb and you threw it down and you said, you got two minutes to get your ass out of here or you won't have to get out, it's gonna be blown out of here. And then you start moving away yourself real fast. He knows you're not kidding. But if, he, if you stayed there and wait till he moved before you pulled the detonator, he wouldn't move. He wouldn't move until you did. So I'd run it up and down, <laughs> try to get him out. But after the, the, they seemed to know, when they saw us working, they seemed to know to stay the hell away from us because we were drawing a lot of fire. So they would go to the left and they'd go to the right of us, thank goodness. But some of them didn't. The Germans knew what you guys were doing then. And, and uh, did they know you were blowing the I must have known you were blowing the obstacles. Tell me about that. I don't really know. I've I read a lot of intelligence reports, but uh, I never saw them give any indication that they knew anything about the underwater demolition men. I don't think they did. They knew about combat engineers, Army combat engineers. They know their job was to blow tank traps and gun emplacements and, and things like that. But I don't think they really knew our job on the beach. 
but they knew that something had to be done because they armed and mined those obstacles, and they had them all up and down the Normandy coast. So they knew somebody had to come in there and blow a path through them, but they didn't know who we were or what we were. Let me tell you an interesting, the first four hours of the Omaha Beachhead, this is retrospect. I read this where Bradley was seriously concerned whether or not we were going to establish the beachhead. We hadn't gotten off the beach in four hours. We were still down there. There were still no open ravines. And he was seriously considering at that time to divert that landing to one of the British beaches. Now, I saw with my own eyes four destroyers come in at different points and lay their keels on the bottom because the big guns firing missiles into those curved concrete obstacles would bounce off of them. These destroyers put their guns at the low level right into those machine guns and right into those firing pits. And they blasted open that ravine right behind my beach, my section. And that's when the engineers broke through and opened that ravine. And that's when they got off the beach. And when they got off the beach, they ran in mass and went around the top and stopped all the fire. Most of the fire, but the more fire, the big guns behind kept firing. But as far as the anti-personnel fire, it was that's that's what stopped it. That's how we conquered the beach. So how how was your equipment? Was was it good equipment? Was it not very good equipment? Was it frustrating, or was it just what you needed? Tell me about that. The equipment we used for demolition, well, it was a, the best that uh, could be devised at the time. It was uh, we designed our own explosive pack called the Hagerson Pack, which was named after one of our own officers who designed it. The, uh, the ability to carry explosives in compact little packs that would do the job of blowing these mine obstacles was a very tricky job. So we designed our own pack and we, and we utilized a fast-firing primer cord to tie them all into one another. Can you describe a Hagerson Pack? Hmm? What's a Hagerson Pack look? Hagerson Pack was a pack about nine or 10 inches long it was about two inches square, like a sausage shape. This canvas was a plastic explosive loaded in it, and through the core of it was a strip of primer cord. And out of the primer cord was a loop, a loop about this long, which I would bring my line and tie that into that, see? So when I fired my line, it fired that, that primer cord and set off that, that explosive. Now this pack, about eight, 10 inches long, was flexible and pliable. It would, you could bend it around a, a joint in, a, in an iron beam or around the leg of a, of a log or what have you. And then you, could, you had a, an I-class hook to tie it into it, a rope, a little piece of rope. And that was the main thing. And uh, we had wire cutters uh, and uh, <laughs> the joke, they, they offered us a choice of carbines of 45s. I said, who the hell are we going to shoot? <laughs> so I brought home a beautiful Stargaze uh, carbine. <laughs> so it's some hunter up in Pennsylvania. But no, the answer to your question was, the, we, as we trained and developed, we developed primarily our own tubes, our own know-how, because there was no prior experience for this kind of thing, nowhere. We developed it, our, we had improvised it ourselves. And we were really pretty damn satisfied with what we had. We never said we didn't have this, we didn't have that. But the only complaint we ever had was when we went out to the Pacific and they gave us some cheap swim fins that weren't worth a damn. We got those replaced pretty quick. Was this a suicide mission or was this just a job to be done? I mean, how many men survived and, and what do you think about the idea? We had 52% casualties. There were 32 killed and 63 wounded out of our 92 men on, of the NCDU groups. Now, uh, it wasn't planned that way. It was totally, it was dangerous, seriously dangerous and hazardous work, and it was all volunteers. And did I tell you how, the how they volunteered, how they put the units together? So there was no man there wasn't there because he didn't want to be there, or because he was assigned there, or forced to be there. He was there because he wanted to be. And so we never felt like we were victims of suicide missions. We were used as a suicide mission. We were given an extremely hazardous duty to perform, and it turned out to be a suicide mission because of the way the Germans were armed and ready for us. I can't answer that question any better than that. Well, actually, I want to button your shirt here real quick, and then I'm going to ask you one more question. Sorry to be kind of half uh, mother. That's, does that and, satisfy uh, the yeah, suicide Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. That's, it's honest. It's just what yeah. it is. Uh, 
Did you have any clue that you were going to get that kind of crossfire when you were going in? Did you expect it to be like this, or was it about what you expected? We, it's <laughs> a good question. We didn't expect the intensity of this crossfire because our briefing was glorious. We were told there were going to be 4,000 bombs dropped on Omaha Beach before HR. They missed the beach and dropped them behind the beach. We were told there were going to be thousands of rockets fired onto the beach that would detonate the booby traps and the mines at the high water mark and what have you. They missed. We were told that the heavy guns of the Texas and other big battleships and destroyers were going to blast the hell out of all the gun positions on the Omaha beachhead. It would be pretty well nullified by the time we got there. It would be a cakewalk. It wasn't. They miscued. So in answer to your question, we were very optimistic until we hit the high water mark. And when we saw the machine gun fire and the mortar fire, then we knew it was a different story a different kind of a war. How much did individual men turn the tide at uh, Omaha Beach? I want to tell you, <clears throat> in my opinion, every man on that beach was a hero that day. I didn't see one shirk or nowhere whatsoever. Even the wounded were trying like hell to do the right thing. Because everybody had a common cause. It wasn't, you couldn't hide from a damn thing. And nobody could help anybody hide from anything, so you had to do something. And <clears throat> I think the story I told you about the destroyers, nullifying the guns in that ravine, and the army guys getting into there and blowing that mine, those mines out and so that the soldiers, the infantry, could get up that ravine, that was the group that saved the day. The destroyers and then the army guys getting in there, and we got them there by blowing the gaps through that water for them. Did they use your gap to come aground? Tell me about that. Well, I, I couldn't tell. I mean, you you were 300 yards away and you're 26 well, foot. Did they use a gap blown by your team to come aground? We, we, we put buoys down to, to, to mark. We only had a partial gap. Those that were on the wrong side of the gap hit mine obstacles. Those on the right side got through. But the, the five gaps that were open that we did blow were well marked and they were able to use that. And these people were all piled up under the, the foot of those cliffs behind the seawall, sort of with the dune line, that we want to call it. So they were ready for that evacuation as soon as that opening was made in that ravine. That's the best way I can answer that question. Because from my point of view, I can only see so far left and right and uh, who was, I don't know who would come in because I was busy as hell the first four hours reaching the high but water. Again, my question is, the destroyers that came in that you said ran themselves aground, they were coming in a gap that your team or that these teams had blown, is that correct? Or no, they weren't coming in the gap. No, okay. no, no. So they were running aground They were running, the they were coming in as close as they could get and they put their keels on the, on the, on the sand so they could get in a low level firing in there, you know. Now, what level of the tide had come in, I don't recall, but I, I know that it was uh, 26 fire tide. It was probably about 15 feet of, uh, of water that they were in that much closer. So wouldn't they have had to have a gap to get up to run aground? No, no. no. So they were going basically above the obstacles when yeah, they ran aground. Yeah, so they were just yeah. taking a hell of a chance of doing it. Well, you, you, let me... The, uh, the keel of a destroyer is about 26 feet. So they couldn't get near the low water mark. Nice. You see, they were before they run aground. So they you. were running aground out. Right. They I were they, out, they were out beyond the lines of obstacles before they when they hit the ground. Okay. See? But they come in that close. If the tide <clears throat> had been all the way in, they'd have been in danger of running into the obstacles because it, the twenty-six foot tide would have held. What's your most vivid memory of this, of D-Day? My most vivid memory of D-Day was reaching the high water mark alive. <laughs> I can't think of anything else. Uh, a lot of my vivid memories are very unpleasant. And uh, being able to help survive it, others get to the high water mark was the thing I was most 
proud of. You know, it's only been in recent years I'll even talk about this thing. My kids would never, I'd never tell them about it. And uh, it was when the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and they had this big celebration. I took my wife at that time to the 40th anniversary. I made a better crossing of the channel this time on a ferry. I went down and visited the beaches and made pictures of it. And, uh, that loosened me up. I began to talk about it then. Why wouldn't you talk about it before? Well, it was too painful the memories. The sights were too, too, you know, too many close people killed and destroyed that I'd seen that day that I couldn't do a damn thing about. And uh, you didn't want to talk about those things. You didn't want to remember them. And as I said before, everybody was a hero. There wasn't any one outstanding guy. No, no one. They made a hero out of me, but I've got news for you. I had three or four guys I put in for, for awards that should have got the, the awards hands down. But uh, they went through the wrong channels, I guess. I don't know. It's, you know, we wasn't very war, well organized administrative-wise. <laughs> How important were your actions to uh, the success of D-Day and to winning the war? You mean the, the organization or no, me? You and the group, and your group. I mean, how important, not, not just you, but with the Navy combat demo guys, how important were you guys to... I will answer the, the question this way. I don't think, I don't think they would have ever established the beachhead at Omaha without the work of our outfit. Uh, even with the destroyers doing what they did. Because there would have never been the manpower on that beach to take advantage of what the destroyers did. So I say again that the, the, the combined GAP teams, the Army and the Navy GAP teams, were responsible for that successful beachhead there. I read the statistics on the Army. They received 15 Distinguished Service Medals, equivalent to the Navy Cross. So there were seven Navy Crosses for our group. God knows how many Silver Stars and Bronze Stars. They received the Presidential Unit Citation. They were heavily hailed and decorated. The Army Combat Engineer, they deserved every damn one of them in front of my books. And my group was highly decorated, too. So how big a role did you guys play in winning the war? In winning the war? Your work that day, how important was it to win Well, in retrospect, they, they claim that the, the successful invasion of Normandy is what caused us to win the war in Europe. And we played a major role in that successful invasion. How's that for a cute answer, huh? No, I mean it. And uh, that's the way it's been touted. Somebody wanted to know why I was leading the drive to put these plaques together to go into this museum to honor those men, not only on Omaha, but the Utah Beach, too. And the staff was, some of the staff was a little irritated with me because I was so persistent about certain things. They said, this, this is not the only plaque, you know. I said, yes, it is. It's the only plaque to honor the men who was successful in the biggest invasion in the history of warfare, that was Normandy. And they deserve a plaque, they deserve to be recognized, they deserve to be honored from, from now through eternity for what they did there. So don't tell me this is not a, just another plaque. <laughs> I'm not his friend anymore, I don't think. <laughs> That's it. Let's see if I've got anything else here for you. Looking back on it now, I mean, you know, from a lot of years, how do you feel about what happened that day? Well, humorously, I've often said I wouldn't take a million dollars for the experience and I wouldn't give you a nickel for any more of it. But in, in thinking back about it, for a poorly organized group like we were, but well-trained and well-disciplined, and well organized to do the work. I mean, disorganized from an administrative point of view. I was pretty damn proud of the outfit, and still proud of it. And as you know, the, the NCDUs were disbanded after Normandy and went into what they call teams then, UDT teams. And they have a hell of a job that they did in the Pacific that's worth. And I was fortunate. I put together a team with, the, with my commanding officer from Omaha, Scotty Cooper. 
Team 25. And we were finishing our basic training in Maui, getting ready for the big push on Japan proper. We were in Oceanside, California, taking cold water training when they dropped the A-bomb. I went up to Scotty Cooper and I said, well, shake hands with number one. He said, number one, what? A civilian. I said, I'm getting the hell out of this outfit. <laughs> I had enough points. <laughs> he said, don't you want to go to Japan? He said, we're going to put the occupation for it. Goodbye. I said, you have a Navy career. I'm going home. I want to go back to be a civilian. Well, thanks for telling your story. Enjoy. I really appreciate it. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. John Telton was a seaman second class on D-Day. My name is John Talton, T-A-L-T-O-N, and I was a seaman second class in Force O of Naval Combat Demolition, Demolition Unit that went into the Omaha Beach in Normandy. We approached the beach and grounded and immediately dropped the ramp. I was standing between Wickham and Duffy on the starboard side. And when, when the ramp dropped, the starboard gunner on our side cut loose with his 50. The Germans must have used the tracers as a target because we were immediately hit. The first hit hit Wickman beside me and Duffy. On, uh, uh, Wickman was to my right and Duffy to my left. Wickman was practically decapitated and Duffy was hit in the back. And they just slid down in the, <coughs> excuse me, the boat. Next shell got Raymer and Michelin. That was the officer, the boat crew officer, and the boat crew chief. <coughs> excuse me. We got one more shell, and it got wounded one of the Army men in the back. And then the Raymer, who was hit in the forehead, said, grab a package and let's get the hell out of here. So we ran off the end of the ramp and there we stood in 15 feet of water with all of our combat gear and I won't go into detail to say I had on hobnail boots, uh, long thermal underwear, a suit of army ODs and a field jacket and then that uh, wax impregnated canvas that was supposed to be gas proof. Helmet, gas mask, canteen, M1 carbine and 90 rounds of ammunition and I stood on the bottom about 15 feet of water. My buddy Dombrowski, I don't remember, that tells me that I squeezed his CO2 cartridge and pushed him my elbow and pushed him to the top. I was five years older than Dombrowski. Uh, I was raised on the coast and a, a good swimmer. I, I didn't panic, but I could tell the difference between down and up because it was lighter up. The sensation that I remember was trying to break that helmet through the, uh, push it up. I uh, managed to get out enough gear to move and I only had to swim and uh, paddle about 15 feet to where I could wade. I immediately moved towards the beach. I was still trying to drag a satchel of explosives, but I didn't have any igniters or primer cord. As I got to the beach, I looked back and Raymer and Mishner were jogging up and down and they were up to the shoulders in water and uh, they were headed uh, seaward. And we were instructed not to go back or look for the wounded. We were to go forward and perform our operation. And uh, But I said to hell with it. I went back and pulled them up to where they could wade and then went back and crawled to the beach. By well, this time, the tide was in. We had not blown a gap at that section at that time. I got up to the beach, and I put my trusty M1 over the side, and I could hear the German fire control firing. 
I put it over the, uh, up between the gooseberry wire and pulled the trigger and the sand rolled out the end of the barrel. We did trapped sand in the, the entrained sand in the water had gotten in the M1. I crawled back down to the beach and looked and I saw a wounded boat crew chief to my right. And I crawled down and uh, took his uh, Tommy gun away from him. We They had the clip tape uh, Tommy guns. And he was on his back and his hands and arms were wigging like a beetle that's been turned on the back. I have a very vivid picture of this. And he fought me. He didn't want to turn it loose, but he wasn't capable of using it. He'd been wiped out in the face. From his nose to his chin, was his teeth were exposed. I crawled back up to the position where I could hear the fire control of the Germans. I could hear them. And uh, let loose with the uh, Tommy gun at the direction of the voices. And it fired about six rounds and uh, uh, jammed. Well, at that time, all stand between the German fire control and over in front of us and the people coming in with that pile of rocks. And I'm not a very good baseball pitcher. But staying there and looking back, I saw a duck come in. And uh, when it came in and uh, broadsided, I beat on the side like that, asked if I could get a weapon. They threw me a weapon and two bandoliers of ammunition, and I joined the war right above the hill. I fired in. Is that to say that you stopped working demolition at that moment and you became an infantryman? I, I, I was an infantryman then because I had uh, uh, no prime accord, and the tide was at our feet, and the obstacle covered up then. Remember this one? We went in on an ongoing, ongoing tide. The object, we were laying at 06, about 0615 to get the low tide. When the tide starts in the Bay of Seine on that 18 foot run, it rushes. So I was in, uh, I, I say, I joined the war with the best effort that I could muster was to fire at the direction. Shortly thereafter, uh, the Germans that were controlling the, their position evidently ran out of ammunition or something. And uh, one of the army men that had a mine detector was right over to my right. He saw these Germans jump out of this uh, manhole that they were in and run up the hill through the minefield. He threw his tape, I mean his mine detector down and went right behind him with the white tape. And to my knowledge, that was the first opening on the Easy Red Beach. Now, you can only tell about the war what you see. I don't know what was going on to my far right and my left, but in my peripheral vision, that was the first thing that I saw that looked like a place to get through. The men started immediately following him without orders. These men seemed to be self-motivated to me. They were like me. They were without command, but they had one direction it looked like, and that was forward. Shortly thereafter, after these men started through, a German came up with his hands over his head. And uh, uh, we were beside, by that time, an LCM had washed up with the ramp down at a slight angle. And I heard this whistling noise. I didn't know what it was, but he dived under the ramp. And I did too and dragged Dombrowski under with me. I later found out this was the beginning of the mortar barrage on that beach. For information of people who haven't been there, along that beach, contoured with the beach, were a series of manholes with scenes of the beach painted to the right and the left with calibration marks. Up above, halfway up the hill, was a trench that followed the contour of the beach with mortars in it. Those men, fire controlmen in the manholes, could see a landing craft come into the beach or a group of men. They could call that calibration in and drop a mortar in the midst of them. And that went on until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. My memory served me real well that particular time. I had been told that the Germans were methodical. As I saw those mortar shells start moving down the beach from the knocked out LCM, I grabbed Dombrowski and we followed them 
behind them and tracked them. The, uh, there was nothing else for me to fire at at that point. Uh, you were really emasculated except uh, mentally as far as trying to do something except stay alive, regardless of what people might say. There was nothing else that you could do for a demolition man on the beach at that time. The obstacle covered with water. So I Just moved. Can I ask a question? Yeah. The manholes that, you, that the Germans are in, they're observation manholes. Yes, right? yeah, fire control. And, and where are they in relation to the water line and the I'm on a uh, guess about 30 or 35 feet. I didn't have any measurements. 35 feet from where? From uh, the dune line there, where we were. And by the way, there was no sand on the beach. It was all a rock pile. They called it shale, and they're round rocks. The few tanks that got in later got on those, and they skidded back and forth like you on rollers, and a tank is not armored underneath, and they were wiped out with anti-tank guns. So we had the tanks burned out on the beach. It should have been our heavy fire support that morning. The ones that got off of the LCTs and got onto the beach were knocked out right at the dune line. The heaviest weapon that was going in that time beside the Navy destroyers that I could see was, in, in my area, was a BAR that the men carried. So what, where did you do next? You were following the mortar line. I followed that down and uh, Time, I don't know how much time, I didn't have a watch on. All I know is the sun began to break out. And when it did, they had rammed these landing craft in through the obstacles and they'd loaded equipment all the way down the beach. But there was no road open in the segment that I, sector that I was in. And they were running parallel to the beach. Then the German fire controlman got the big stuff behind the lines, the 88s. They started boom, boom, boom down the half tracks the trucks that were towing the gasoline tankers and the uh, half tracks with the uh, twin 50s and the 20 millimeter in and all the other small vehicles and all that they were running in. And also the Germans were using some type of shell that uh, had a flammable stuff like a flammable jelly. And uh, I saw one LCT come in, and as they dropped the ramp, one of these shells hit on it, and it just froze them in position like that. It just burned them as they stood in position to let the ramp down. I saw the carnage from where these shells went down, and, and it seemed like they could drop them right in the seat of where the drivers were sitting like that, and of course they just slumped, and it's a strange thing about shots. It seemed to decapitate people from the eyebrows up. And uh, in my sector, and of course, from your imagination and uh, probably fear combined, it seemed like to me there were miles of it. But again, I could only tell about my peripheral vision, only what miles, I could see. Miles of what? It looked like to me there were miles of this carnage going on down the beach. But uh, again, I'd like to contain this in the fact that I could only tell you what I saw. And you know how for what I, your vision is. But at that time of the afternoon, the sun was out. Uh, by the time this was finished, there was a lull. By this time, it was, the sun was setting. It was going dark. They took every man, the Germans stopped. At that time, they took every man on the beach and they started ramming small craft in to start evacuating the wounded. Dombrowski and I carried wounded from then until hard dark, which was late in the night, on out and uh, we waited up to our chins and slid these stretchers or muscle these people on these landing craft to get them off the beach because there was no treatment now. They didn't have sufficient uh, medics and all to take care of them. We did all we could for them and got them on and got them out. Some of the landing craft hit mines that were mounted on the stakes going out. Then we went up and dug in, it was getting dark then, we dug in beside an LCT that was broached on the beach. And we took our helmets and dug out and got in a crouched position and uh, we crouched down and the first thing I heard was gas attack. Well, we did, we'd already lost our gas mask. We had the old canvas and the sand and trained in them, you would drown with them. So, we'd, so the next thing you were supposed to do was to urinate on a piece of cloth and put it over your face. Well, not being capable of uh, or in that, I dipped it into salt water. We tore 
shirt tails off and put them over our face, but it was a false alarm. Then they started strafing the beach. That's when uh, whatever air uh, Luftwaffe that they got that day, they strafed this thing, and uh, we got out of the trench we had, and we wrestled with the help of Palomarski, who was in our group. It was somewhere to my left. We wrestled uh, 30 caliber off of an LCVP and the belts of ammunition with it. Dombrowski and I have been over, and old Palomarski used us as a tripod, and we fired all of that at the direction of the planes. When that was gone and the planes were gone, we went back into trench, and the Germans bombed the beach that night, and they hit the LCT that we were dug in, and, and it caught on fire. And uh, we crawled out, and I took a step and fell, and I said, Brummo, I've been hit. But it wasn't. I hadn't been hit. My leg was just paralyzed from the lack of circulation in it, I guess, and being in the water. So Dombrowski, being a big husky man, pulled and dragged me up to a place where they had a medic tent. And we crawled in and asked permission to stay. And at that time, I developed a strange disease. I don't know where you've ever heard. It's called the foxhole shakes. But I didn't know what it was. I was talking as calmly as I'm talking today, but my hands were doing like this. Couldn't stop them. I asked a medic, I said, hey, have you got a pill for that? I said, uh, I can't stop these hands like that. I said, I can't even move around. He said, uh, son, there ain't no pill for that. And we asked permission to stay there for the night, and he sent us down to a line of people out there, and uh, we, uh, whatever, Hours were they left in the night. We stayed until the first light of the morning. I grabbed Dombrowski and I said, hey, we got work to do. The tide was out again like it was when we landed. We ran off to my right, which was the starboard side, and the rubber boats were up on the beach. We grabbed explosives, and they'd already run a ring main on that section, and we started tying in the composition C2 and Tetratol. In the meantime, there was a a dozer that started working down the beach. And I think, now this is the thing, I believe that one of our men named Pala, uh, Pala not Pala, Pogoselsky, good Irishman from Pennsylvania, was uh, driving that. Anyway, it hit a tank, uh, hit a, one of the telemines that had fallen off the obstacles and blew up, blew the tracks off, and he jumped off. Shortly thereafter, the Germans put a barrage down with the heavy stuff from way back off the beach, on that sector of the beach. Dombrowski and I were on the seaward side, so we ran towards the uh, surf. And there we stumbled over a rope, and it was the sea anchor for an LCI. And uh, I took my helmet line apart and signaled and permission to go on board and granted immediately. We went on board. The radio man on that LCI was my brother. Douglas Talton, and he lives in Tallahassee today. He took the Rangers in to point the hawk, part of them. He was back on D plus one with another load. We went on board. They gave us some candy bars, and uh, that place where I told you about, I'd bruise my leg like they put some salve on it. And uh, the skipper told us, said, you got to go back. said, if you stay on board, uh, be classified as deserters. So uh, we uh, took what we call pokey bait. That's what they call candy in the Navy. And, put it in our pockets, and they jumped over the side and got on the ropes. Well, the tide was running so strong then, it started uh, back in, that we were holding on ropes like this, and uh, frankly, I thought we were going to drown. But here comes the engineers along in one of those collapsible boats. They were canvassed with a wooden frame, and they, he just pulled it up alongside, and we hung onto the gunnel, and he towed us into where we could wade, and went back to the beach. On the beach, my clothes were in shreds from the day before operation and all. And uh, I took a jacket off of a cadaver that had the Army insignia on it. It was one of the grave mistakes that I made. Shortly thereafter, I was volunteered into the infantry and managed to get as far as Bayou France as an infantryman. And then finally, when you look back on this today and the work of the NCDU, and I know that 
your work at the NCDU was actually the day after, but just your team and your, your group going in, how do, you, how do you hold it in your mind? How do you think about it all as you look back on it now? Was it a disaster? Was it something you're proud of? How, what was it? Well, I am proud to have participated in one of the great events of the 20th century as far as I'm concerned, as an individual. To me, now it may not be the greatest event. The other one, the intentions of every man, including me at that time, was to perform my job and get away and get these troops in and let's thrash the Germans and get on with it. That was it. I had uh, failed and all like that. Uh, I don't have an opinion as that. Um, left as I was, I turned to the animal instinct of survival and to contribute what I could from training. Uh, there was a very futile effort I made with the small arms, but I did all that I could. If I could have lugged a 75 millimeter, I would have lugged that up too. But I did what I could with what we had. And I, one other thing, I would like all of the people of our generation, I have a great respect for the enlisted men that had the motivation to move out without officers and all and to do their job. The, we had good officers, but where they had been passed away or command split, the men still performed their duty. And from the looks of the men that died on the beach that day, they were all facing Germany as a majority. You could look at them up and down that afternoon. They were facing forward and not backwards. It was one of the bloodiest days of the Second World War, but also one of the most necessary. The opening of the Second Front in Europe put Hitler on the run and hastened the end of the war by years. But to those who were there and survived, the carnage and slaughter remain very real. It lives on in their minds today, as does the glow of valor and a job well done. you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.